If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Jesus is very much a well-known person today. Uh, he's everywhere, really, in pop culture. He's on t-shirts. He shows up in cartoons. Uh, sometimes you'll hear, uh, at least for me, somewhat shockingly, celebrities talk about him in interviews. They have him in books, and his name is on the cover. Jesus is well-known, but I believe he is not well-understood Many people know the name Jesus, they know of Jesus, but they do not really know Him. They do not understand who He is, why He came, what His mission was about, or even why He is still important today. In fact, if you were to take all the things said about Jesus in popular culture and lay them side by side, what you would find are a lot of people that disagree about Him and about why He came and what He was here to do. Some might even wonder whether Jesus really is still all that important for us today. Well, as we're gathered here this morning, I want to let Jesus speak for himself. I want Jesus to be able to tell us why he came, what he did for us, and what he continues to do for us today that still makes him important to our lives. And we're going to do that by looking at this chapter of the Gospel of Luke. For those of you that may not know, Luke was a doctor who lived in the first century during the time of Christ. He was a Christian who traveled with the Apostle Paul. And during his travels, he met, interviewed, and wrote down information from people who actually met Jesus. People that talked to him, people that had been healed by him, even Jesus' own mother, Mary. And eventually he compiled these eyewitness accounts, these statements into the book that we have before us, specifically to give assurance to a man named Theophilus, that Jesus really was the Son of God and that he really was the Savior of the world. And this morning as we look at chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, we find Jesus himself showing these things, explaining who he is and why he came. And if we understand that, we will see why Jesus is still important for us today. Luke sets the scene for the whole chapter in the first three verses. Look at what he says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Luke tells us that gathered around Jesus were tax collectors and sinners. Who are these people? Well, first of all, you need to understand that from the Bible's perspective, there's no such thing as a person who is not a sinner. It's not as if they're saying tax collectors, sinners, and there's some other people over here that aren't sinners. No, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Among other things, that means we do not live up to his standards. We are imperfect. We are sinful. But there are some people who have a reputation for sinfulness. There are some people, and it is well known that they are sinful. Others hide it well. They keep their sins private, and we don't know it as well. But for these, their wickedness was well known. And among this group were the tax collectors. Now, as much as we don't like those that would collect taxes today, they were even more reviled and disliked in Jesus' day. Some of you might know that these would have been Jews working for the Romans. They were seen as collaborators. They were traitors to the Jewish people because they would not only collect Roman taxes, but they would take more than they should for themselves. They were getting rich by bilking their own people. If you know history, they were the Benedict Arnolds of their day. 
Tax collectors and sinners. These were the people that came to Jesus and noticed Jesus was glad to welcome them. There's a reason Jesus is called the friend of sinners in the Bible. There is no sin that is too shocking or too off-putting for Jesus. Jesus welcomes sinners not despite their sin, as if it doesn't matter, but specifically because they are sinners. And Jesus came for sinners. He came to provide forgiveness and a transformed life for sinners. But notice Jesus, as he's welcoming sinners, is criticized for it. They were not only people known for their sin in Jesus' day, there were also people in Jesus' day who were known for their righteousness, or at least what looked like righteousness on the outside. These Pharisees and scribes were known for their very meticulous keeping of God's law. They not only kept all 613 laws in, in the law of God, but they created other traditions to help them keep those laws. So what they ended up doing was living a life by checklist, making sure that everything that they did either kept God's law or kept them to keep God's law. The problem was, in all of that, they had no heart for God. So they weren't even really keeping the law the way that God wanted them to keep it. So their righteousness was not real, it was hollow, it was empty. It would be like looking at a massive cake uh, decorated wonderfully with icing and all kinds of things and you go to cut into it and the whole thing collapses because it was just a shell of icing. That's like the, the righteousness of the Pharisees. There was just nothing there. In part because they could not see their own sin. They could not see their own need of forgiveness from God. So they would actually go out of their way to avoid contact with sinners lest they somehow become contaminated. They would see a sinner and they would walk on the other side of the street. They would see a sinner and they would avoid eye contact as if somehow it was like a sickness that they would get. They had no real righteousness of their own, but they were known for their righteousness. And Jesus sees them grumbling about him coming for sinners. And what Jesus wants to do is to help them understand why it is good and right that he is with sinners and why they themselves should be with Jesus as sinners. So, Luke says, Jesus told them a parable. Now, what's a parable? Well, some people think it's like Aesop's fables. It's an interesting story that has a kind of moral conclusion, but Jesus' stories are much more than that. Jesus' parables convey important spiritual principles that often defy the expectations of those listening. They thought they understood who God was. They thought they knew what life was like in his kingdom. They thought they knew how they ought to live. But Jesus comes and he explodes those ideas. He completely flips them around and turns them on their head. That's why someone has said that parables are like spiritual hand grenades. Jesus pulls out the hand grenade, he sets it down, he pulls the pen as he begins telling the parable. And as the story comes to its conclusion, it goes off. And suddenly expectations are blown away and only true reality is there, often revealing sinful hearts. This morning, we want to look at this parable that occurs in the rest of chapter 15. We have three stories here, but you'll notice that Luke says he taught them this parable. It's actually one long parable just told in three different scenes. It's really a cycle that's repeated three times. Something is lost, something is found, and there's great rejoicing. And all three stories are helping us to see the same point, why Jesus came and why he is still important for us today. 
So as we begin to walk through this parable, the first thing we see is the story of a caring shepherd. A caring shepherd. Jesus begins in verse 4 with this question. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now think about the, the picture that Jesus gives here. It begins with a lost sheep. Now, for all their cuteness, sheep are actually pretty helpless. Uh, to put it bluntly, they're helpless because they're stupid. All right? Sheep are inherently stupid. Scientists have created this uh, category of animal intelligence by comparing the relative size and weight of an animal's brain compared to the rest of its body. So the bigger the brain is compared to the body, the more intelligent the animal is. Well, on that scale, guess where sheep come? Dead last. They are at the bottom. They are some of the most ignorant animals that God created. And that lack of intelligence is seen in their behavior. They can't find food or water on their own. That's why they're utterly dependent on the shepherd. When a predator attacks, they do not run for safety. They just run in circles, making it all the easier for them to be caught and killed and eaten. Beyond that, they have no physical defense whatsoever. They don't have fangs. They don't have claws. They don't even have any stink spray like a skunk to keep predators away. They are essentially fast food for predators. All of that means they are especially vulnerable and needy. The shepherd, of course, knows all this, and that's why even when one is lost, he goes after it. And when he finds it, he doesn't beat it up for being lost or stupid. He doesn't even make it walk home. He puts it up on its shoulders and carries it home after its ordeal. More than that, when he arrives at home, he goes all of his friends together so that they can rejoice with him that it's found. Now understand, at this point, those listening are scratching their heads. Say, so we okay, we, we get it, he's happy he found the sheep, but it's just one sheep, and it's just a sheep, right? They're kind of a dime a dozen, unless you only got one or two, you got a whole flock. Why is he rejoicing so much? And then, at least the first part of the grenade goes off. Jesus explains that in the same way the shepherd in his story is overjoyed when he finds the lost sheep, he says, so there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous, righteous persons who need no repentance. Remember, listening to this parable are all of these so-called righteous people who need to repent, but they don't know it. They can't see it. They are blind to their sin. And Jesus says he has come caring for the lost sheep of Israel. He has come caring for sinners who desperately need God. But more than that, he searches out for those that are lost. And this is what Jesus tells us about in the second section of this chapter where we see the story of a searching woman. The story of a searching woman. In verse 8, Jesus says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently seek until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, if you're like me, you've probably lost something at some point in your house. 
It might have been a phone. It might have been a book. It might have been a set of car keys. If if it's definitely like us, it's the remote control to the television and or the DVD player. And you've got those times where you're pulling up the couch cushions and you're looking around. Where is that stupid thing? You know, you know, when I was younger, they used to actually have buttons on the television. You can still operate the thing, and they don't have it anymore. No more buttons. You got to have the remote. The other day, right before I went out of town, I realized I lost my checkbook. That's a scary thing. Where did I leave this thing? Where did I put it? I remember the last time I had it, but then I couldn't remember anything after that. And so I was, I was frantically searching everywhere I usually put it in the house. I was looking where I didn't put it in the house. And my only thought was, I hope upon hope, I left it at my office at the church building. And then lo and behold, I unzipped a backpack, not where it ever usually put it, and pull out the checkbook, and there was great rejoicing in this house. <laughs> and my wife just kind of rolled her eyes at my stupidity for losing it in the first place. And that was probably justified. Well, what we see here is something not much different as with the shepherd. We're given no information about this woman, whether she's young or old, married or widowed. But when she loses this coin, she is lurking everywhere for it. That's the point. The woman lost something very precious to her. We don't know what it is and it doesn't matter. We just know it's precious to her and she's desperate to find it. So she goes to the house, sweeping out the dirt in every nook and cranny. So that way, any dust that may have got caught on the coin will go away and she can see it gleaming as she holds the lamp to cast light in the shadows, looking to find this lost coin. And when she finds it, she rejoices. Such is her joy that like the shepherd, she goes and gathers her friends that they may rejoice with her. Here again is a picture of Christ himself who diligently seeks out the lost. And a reminder of the rejoicing that takes place when just one sinner comes to faith in him and experiences salvation. Jesus says, verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus has told us about this caring shepherd and about this searching woman now, he gives us a more involved final story. That This detailed story is, is, has much more content than the other ones. And in fact, it's very well known. It's often called something like the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the, the lost son. Notice though that the point in all three of these stories, or at least the two we've seen so far, is not actually about the thing that's lost. It's about the person that goes looking for it. And so it's right that in other languages, this part of the parable is often called the story of the waiting father, or as one African translation has it, the parable of the joyous father. But perhaps my favorite from a German edition of the Bible calls it the parable of the gracious father. That's the last thing that we want to see from Jesus' parable in Luke 13, the gracious father. In verse 11, Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so he, that is the father, divided his property between them, his two sons. Now from the get-go, we need to put ourselves in the mindset back then. Because this sounds a little rude, but not that big of a deal. But what we need to understand is that Israel had very specific laws concerning inheritance. In fact, the older of the sons would have received double that of the younger sons. This law was designed to keep homesteads together, keeping the children from being tempted or forced to break up the land of the property that God had given to their family. Normally, of course, the inheritance will be received by the sons after the father passed away. But notice the younger of the two sons 
feels contempt for his father. He doesn't respect him. He doesn't love him. He wants to make his own way in the world and a name for himself. In order to do that, he needs his inheritance early. That was unthinkable in Israel. It was unheard of. You were essentially saying to your father, I wish you were dead. Give me what would come to me when you die right now. Now at this point, those listening to the story may have expected Jesus to say that the younger son was beaten and thrown out of the house and never heard of again. That would have been acceptable. But no one can imagine listening to Jesus what would actually take place. That the father would actually give him what he asked for. Jesus says that after that happened, this is verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. Rather than begin a new life, the son squanders his inheritance. That's where the title, the prodigal son, comes from. Prodigal is a Latin word that means wasteful, and that's what the son was. He was wasteful with the money and the resources that he was given from his father. He's used all of that up, and then in this faraway land, a famine strikes. That means that the crops did not come in as expected and there was no food. So here's this young man who has no money. He's far from home and in a land where there's hardly anything to eat. So what does he do? He has to go find a job. And the job that he f- finds, probably the only one he could find, was feeding the pigs. The pay was so poor, though, that the slop the pigs were eating looked better than the food that he was given. He didn't even have enough to eat. Now, this sounds bad, but once again, remember, remember who's telling this and where it's being told. This is first century Israel. Here's a young man who leaves the promised land, having disobeyed God's command to honor his father. More than that, he finds himself with a job that requires him to associate with an animal that is not only considered unclean, but considered so unclean, so out of bounds for Jewish culture, that their enemies were identified by its name. They would call the Gentiles, their enemies, pigs, swine. And here he is, a good Jewish boy, living with the swine not even eating as good as a swine. For a young Jewish boy, this is as low as you could get. You could not get any lower. It would have been a shock to the scribes and the Pharisees listening to Jesus. This is the result of this young man's life. But think about others who were listening. Think about others who were listening and they could relate. This wasn't just some scene that they thought they prayed to God would never happen to them. This is where their lives were at that very moment. They had been caught up in a pattern of sin that had left them in the pig slop of life. Friends, sin is deceitful and seductive. It always makes large promises, but never fulfills them in our life. Sin and rebellion looks great, but there's always the stinger in the tail that's waiting to strike. There's always bad, foul consequences that come from our sin. More than that, once we begin to excuse and rationalize small sins, 
big sins become easier and easier, and eventually we find ourselves in the pig slop of life, looking around at the chaos and mess we've created, wondering how in the world we ever got here and how in the world we're ever going to get out. Notice what happens to this young man, though, in Jesus' story. In verse 17, in the midst of all this misery and hopelessness, Jesus says the young man came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. The younger son comes to himself in Jesus' words. That is to say, he has a moment of clarity about why he is where he is. It's his own fault. He's not a victim of circumstance. It's not because of some genetic disposition. He has sinned against heaven and against his father. And now he is facing the circumstances of that sin. He acknowledges, he confesses his own sin, but more than that, he desires to repent of it and be restored to his family, not even as a son, just as a servant, as a slave that would work for the father. In the midst of that, he remembers the generosity of his father and how even the servants are treated so well. And that's all he hopes for. And he gets up, he leaves the pigs behind, and he heads home. But notice what Jesus says in verse 20. While the young man was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. If we could have been standing with Jesus, I am certain that there would have been bulging eyes and gaping mouths by the Pharisees and the scribes. They could not believe this was the response of the Father. Your son comes home covered in the muck and mire of the pig pen. And rather than discipline him, rather than tell him, are you got to be kidding me? The father runs and greets him and embraces him and kisses him and celebrates his return. I mean, just think about the running. When's the last time you saw a politician in a suit run anywhere? Much less anyone else of any importance. It would have been scandalous for the man just to run. But he fully embraces the son. The son tries to confess his sin, but he doesn't even get the whole confession out. He doesn't even get to the part about the hired servant. The father is yelling out directions. Get the best robe and bring it out to replace these tattered rags that my son is covered in. Get shoes we brought for his sore and naked feet. And best of all, he says, go and get the ring, the family ring, a sign of his sonship. The father doesn't want a servant. He wants a son back. Like the shepherd and the woman, he is ready to share his joy with others. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And they began to celebrate. It is an amazing, perhaps even prodigal, wasteful display of grace from the father in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes. 
And Jesus has not forgotten about them either. Notice in verse 11, this is a story about a father with two sons. And so in verse 25 now, Jesus says, Now the older son was out in the field. And as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fat calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, that is the son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Albert Moeller wisely comments that grace is offensive to those who think they do not need it. The older brother doesn't think that he needs grace. The older brother doesn't think that he needs uh, any kind of forgiveness from the father because he has always obeyed. That's what the older son thinks. He has always done what is right. We can rightly rejoice in the return of the younger son, but it ought to grieve us at the lostness of the older son. For he's a son that doesn't realize he's lost. He hears the party and is disgusted to think that his father has done anything for this wayward brother. Notice he can't even bring himself to call him a brother. He says, it's this son of yours. Wasted your money in wickedness. But notice the father's grace isn't just for the younger son, but for the older son too. He says, come on. Come into the house and join the party. Celebrate the return of your brother. He's dead, but now he's alive. He's lost, but now he's found. You see, the older son has been consumed with serving and obeying. Yet where is his joy at the salvation of his brother? If he was truly the father's son, he should have been crying and dancing at the party along with everyone else. But here's the sad twist. Though one son saw his sin and believed himself only worthy to be a slave... The other son never saw his sin, never truly lived as a son, but was just a slave. A slave to thinking that he needed to earn his father's affection. To thinking that he needed to live a righteous life in order to be a son, rather than knowing you are always a son. He's been slaving away trying to earn his place in the family through obedience, rather than just accept the grace and love of the Father. And it's here that the spiritual hand grenade goes off in full force. For Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and these scribes, and he's seeing many older brothers in front of him. And he's saying, this is for you. This is for you. You are standing outside the kingdom, upset that I am calling sinners in to know the love of the Father when you yourselves should be coming in. You've got everything. You've got the law. You've got the prophets. You've got the land. You've already got God's grace poured out upon you. But the one thing you lack is the ability to see your sin and turn and repent and find mercy from God to be saved. He is challenging them to see their sin, to avoid their hardened hearts, to understand that no one is saved by religious activity, but only by faith in God alone. He wants them to be able to rejoice in the salvation of sinners and tax collectors, but also to see their own sin, to see that these people in some ways are no better than them. They are all sinners in need of grace. 
and forgiveness that comes through repentance. And so this is how Jesus' parable ends. This open invitation of grace and forgiveness. Jesus is asking them, won't you come? Won't you come and rejoice? Won't you come and join the Father? Won't you come and find mercy and forgiveness for your sins? And in that way, the parable of Luke 15, Jesus himself is still relevant, still important, still essential for us today. First, to those of you that are Christians, you should respond by this parable to committing to be like Jesus, to be a good older brother who doesn't just pout because sinners come to be saved, but you're actually out there looking for sinners. You're out there fulfilling the mission of Christ that the lost might be found like a shepherd worried about a lost sheep, like a woman diligently seeking her lost coin or a loving father skiing the horizon for his lost son. So we who are God's people ought to be searching for those in need of the gospel and taking it to them. Jesus said, said that he came to seek and save the lost and he did so joyfully as he makes clear in this parable. And so we've got to be asking ourselves, even as we've been asking all the last month in our Sunday morning sermons, what is our game plan for that kind of mission? How are we going to go about seeking the lost that they might be found? But some of you are here this morning and you're not a Christian. You, you might think that you are because either you were raised in church or because you've attended church, but you've never actually come to the place where you have seen your need of Christ and so fully put your hope and confidence in Him for forgiveness that you have become a child of God. This morning, you must examine your heart. Jesus' invitation did not end in this parable. It did not end in the first century when He's talking to those standing around Him. It continues today. Jesus is still caring for and searching out sinners to whom He can show His grace. You may wonder how God can forgive you. In fact, even earlier this morning, we sang, you bid me come to your holy place, but how can I enter in when your presence bears no sin? How can we come to a holy God if we're sinful? God doesn't just say, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. That might be our grandmothers, but that's not God. He's no one's grandmother. He is God Almighty, and He will judge sin and righteousness. So how can we who are sinners come? Well, it's the very next thing that we sang. We come through Him who poured out His life for me, the atoning Lamb of God. Through Him and His work alone, I boldly come. Amen. Jesus can tell this parable offering grace to sinners because He Himself has secured grace for sinners on the cross. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. The judgment that we deserve was poured out on him so that all of God's wrath towards us and our rebellion has fallen on his son instead. And when we look to Christ to be our savior, then that salvation, that substitution comes to us. That's how we can come through faith in Christ. This morning, we've got to ask ourselves, are we like the Pharisees? Believing that whatever good we will do will outweigh the bad and make us acceptable to God. If that's who we are, then we are lost. We are lost. We are not God's people. But if like the younger son who squandered his life, if we've seen our sin and we're, we have in the past, or we're willing to cry out now to God for mercy, looking to Jesus as our Savior, then we will be found. We will be a sinner who has been forgiven and who will one day be welcomed home with God in heaven. This is why Jesus is still important today. He saves sinners. So today, look to Jesus and be saved.
Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for His life and His death, but also His resurrection. Father, though He died for sinners, He was also raised for sinners, that we might be justified before you. And so, Father, He stands now as the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings, still beckoning sinners to come to Him, to find hope and life and forgiveness, to find salvation in himself. Father, may we look to him in faith and believe and find rest for our weary, sinful souls.